Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 344 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, my guest is Scott Harrison. I'm so excited to have Scott back. He is the founder and CEO of Charity Water. And this episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. You can apply for Pro Media Fire's non-profit growth program today at promediafire.com forward slash growth. And what happened to your budget? Did it kind of go sideways? Yeah, Scott and I are going to talk about that. If you want some free help, Generis has got a brand new resource. You can text the word carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33222. That's just carry to 33222. And I am so glad Scott's uh, back. Scott reached out to me uh, a few weeks ago and he said, hey, can we talk? And so we had a really interesting conversation. And one of the things that I find fascinating about Scott is he is super well connected to uh, really a lot of people in Silicon Valley, uh, people who's, who, are, who are household names, people that I kind of follow. And he's been having conversations with them about where the whole economy and world during and after coronavirus is going. And I would say this is probably the most dystopian view of the future that I've encountered. As you know, on this podcast, I've been asking leader after leader uh, what they see in the future. And Scott's may be the most stark forecast, and he would be the first to say, hope I'm wrong, but he's planning on a couple of austere years. And if you're a leader, uh, I don't know about you, I, I got a friend who said to me, Carrie, you know, you always say, don't bring me any bad news. And this was like years ago. And I'm like, he goes, there is no bad news. There's just news. And I think that's true. And uh, Scott thinks it's going to be uh, a bit of a long go. And uh, I think what he has to say is really fascinating. And I would love for you to listen in and see what you think. I've also got a what I'm thinking about scenario. And I want to talk about why so many leaders are so anxious to open up their churches and how to do it the wrong way. So that's coming up at the very end of the podcast. Scott Harrison is the founder and CEO of Charity Water, a nonprofit that's brought clean water to more than 10 million people around the world. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of the book, Thirst. Now, uh, I want to thank all of you who continue to support the podcast. We had a record May. We've never seen this many people on the podcast, and you guys have just been fantastic. Thank you for leaving ratings and reviews. Dan said this, best leadership podcast. Dan, you said, I've listened to every episode. I'm convinced it's the best leadership podcast out there, many others, but this one seems to bring out gold from each guest. Anyone wanting to get better, no matter where they work or serve, need to subscribe. And uh, Dean Nelson said, hey, Steve Cuss was just outstanding. We heard so much feedback uh, on the Steve Cuss episode a little while ago. And then uh, for all of you who are leaving ratings and reviews, thank you so much. It helps us get the word out there. And please share on social. I'm sharing on my profile when you guys do that all the time. And uh, I'm just really grateful for you. So as we head into summer, uh, I love summer, my favorite season. I hope this follows you with your uh, AirPods wherever you happen to be going, your earbuds, whether that's on a ride, on a run, perhaps back to the gym as they reopen, wherever you are, really happy to be able to do this. So thank you to our partners who uh, are being able to help so many leaders in this unprecedented time. And obviously, digital's the future. So check out what ProMedia Fire has. Uh, they have got a, a program that will give you a digital coach, a creative team, a web team, and a social team for less than the staff of a cost hire. If you're a not-for-profit leader, uh, space is limited. 
Only seven nonprofits will be accepted at this time. So you're like, oh, should I act or not? I, I think you should. Head on over to promediafire.com forward slash growth. That's promediafire.com forward slash growth. Tell them Carrie sent you. And then uh, I talked to a lot of leaders, and I mean, you're going to hear all about financial forecasts with Scott Harrison. And uh, yeah, everybody's 2020 budget just kind of blew up. But the question is, now what? Well, Generis has a brand new book, uh, ebook, that uh, I've read and actually written the foreword to. Uh, it's super helpful on how to actually reposition your budget. So you can go to generis.com forward slash carry 2020, or real simple, just text my name, carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to 33222, you can download it directly to your mobile device. And it will give you some advice on tips um, because you know a lot of church leaders are like, well, the economy is the main problem. No, 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 no. There are churches that are flourishing. The question is, how do you become one of them? So text carry to 33222 and get started with that. Well, guys, I am very excited to bring you this conversation with Scott Harrison. And again, as I said, warning, this is probably the most dystopian forecast that uh, I have heard anyway, but uh, I think it's worth paying attention to. And here's what I believe. I'm an optimist, Scott's an optimist. But as we discuss in this conversation, if you prepare for a slightly bleaker future, you'll be in a much better position to face it. So here's my conversation with Charity Waters, Scott Harrison. Scott, so good to reconnect. Welcome back to the podcast. It's nice to be here. Uh, wish we could be in person. Yeah, 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 yeah. You said, I think the last time we talked, you're like, well, come see me in Manhattan sometime, but that's not happening anytime soon, is it? We're both wow. pretty rural, right? We're, we're off the grid. <laughs> I am almost off the grid. I have, uh, we were comparing notes, uh, on, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, better internet than you are privy to, but you're in Pennsylvania right now? I'm in a rural town in Pennsylvania uh, in a rented 1930s farmhouse on a bunch of land which is pretty much the opposite experience of my two-bedroom uh, apartment with, with two young kids that, that, I've, that I've lived in for, for many years. So we're going to talk all about Charity Water and the crisis that we're in right now. But you, you, I read your wife wrote a great article on Medium about your journey out of downtown Manhattan as a response to covid it, can you tell us a little bit about that? And then is this temporary? Is it permanent? Like what's what's going on? Yeah, well, I think it's at least for a season. Um, yeah. You know, so so COVID obviously is is related to this. Um, the first week of March, there was a case reported uh, in our in our office building, in the kind of adjoining office building. Okay. We took very quick response. We shut down the office. Actually, it turned out to be a negative, but we said, hey, look. Um, there were there were only nine COVID cases in New York City at the time, and we said let's just shut down the office, let's take a really conservative view. And I remember a bunch of bunch of my friends are kind of laughing at me, you know, oh you guys don't want to go to work, huh? You know, this is no big deal. Yeah, and I said, oh, you know, I'd rather be, I'd rather be wrong and then just come back to work, than than wrong and you know have a bunch of people sick. So we kind of that was a really easy decision for us. We said, look, we want to try working remote anyway in case, you know, we need to. And I think, boy, I don't know, just intuitively, our exec team just saw this coming. You know, we saw Manhattan unprepared. We, you know, so I live in a high-rise condo building in a 1,200-square-foot mm -hmm. two-bedroom apartment. So I feel like I lived, I live in a cruise ship on an island <laughs> that is a big cruise ship with 9 million people. 
Yeah, and that's a lot of real estate in Manhattan. I mean, 1,200 square feet, that's that's huge, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> with a three-and-a-half-year-old and a five-and-a-half-year-old, it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> yeah, I'll, bet, I'll bet you're right. But, but, I mean, it's three, you know, it's three rooms. So we shut down the office, and then my wife's grandparents are 80, and my father's 80. So we said, uh-huh. hey, let's just let's rent a house um, in the country. You know, we're going to be working remotely anyway. And let's just get them out of the New York City healthcare system. Now, this is before we started setting up hospitals in Central Park or, you know, the Javits Convention Center or, or hospital ships rolling in. Wow. So we, we felt fortunate to have made that call very early on with limited data. Uh, and then as this played out, you know, we just felt fortunate. And we were about a month before everything, uh, you know, a month before the masks, a month before the the plastic gloves at the at the supermarkets and the the plexiglass that went up everywhere eventually, even where we are. Uh, and, you know, we've been, I mean, gosh, Kara, it's just so different. I mean, living in a pavement city for, mm. you know, a quarter of a century. Now we're on a couple hundred acres. I told you there are bear, two bear families <laughs> on the land, you know, this property that we're renting. I've seen 10 or 15 deer. I've seen a skunk. I mean, I don't think I'd ever seen a skunk before in my life. <laughs> I, I, I knew better than to, to let my kids run out and, uh, and try to pet the skunk. But uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're feeling very fortunate that we are, um, we're safe, uh, we're, we're healthy. And moving at it, we, we actually did move out of New York City just for an affordability uh, factor. Um, I, yeah. I took a pay cut at Charity Water almost immediately along with all my other execs. And um, you know, a bunch of uh, public speaking just mysteriously vanished. As, as oh yeah, happened. welcome to the club, right? Like that's crazy. Welcome to the club, right? Was it about a year that yeah. just disappeared off your docket, almost overnight? Uh, about a year. There's there's a couple hopefuls in November, December, yeah. but I doubt they're going to happen. Yeah. Um, I think that'll get pushed to Same. another year. Yep. So in a way, you know, so many of us have been struggling to live in the city anyway. I mean, you know, some hmm. something like 70% of our income goes to rent, you know, and it's supposed to be, what, a third quarter? Mm-hmm. And that's just, so it was, it was an easy decision. So we hired movers. We weren't even there. And now my entire life's contents are in boxes in a garage that I'm looking at from this this little bedroom uh, of the wow. rented house. Where this from? So my, my wife had a very different take on this. I, I'm an Enneagram 8 with a... a, a a pretty strong seven wing that's been coming yep. out. Same. So I mm-hmm. just care less about any of the stuff. And, you know, it's just in boxes and, you know, I can't find the stupid internet router to return. So I'm going to have to go through the box just so I don't get billed 300 bucks for that thing. Yeah. But other than that, um, I'm, I'm just embracing the change, the time with the kids. Uh, my son caught his first fish by himself at five years old. He jumped in a kayak the other day, this little pond on the property. So we're having all these experience, these family experiences that we just couldn't have uh, in in New York City. Man, and what's your wife on the Enneagram scale? She's a four. <laughs> oh, she's a four. And she's so is she enjoying it as an artist? Artistic uh, type? No, because we're renting a house with someone else's furniture and it's not the way that she would do it. Ah. And there's no, no way to escape. So she's not alone at all. Uh, the kids are up at 6.30 and, you know, we're we're doing some shifts. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously trying to help out, but, um, I'm, I'm working overtime, you know, trying to manage charity water, a, a, you know, a hundred million dollar plus organization through, through this time, uh, this, this, mm-hmm. this crisis. 
And because you're New York City based, like this is going to be indefinite for a while anyway, for a season, as you said. Well, we've shut the office through the rest of the year. So um, again, we're just, we make decisions pretty quickly as a team and um, we're, we're fully remote until the end of the year. Um, we, we've got a great landlord, so we were able to you know, dramatically renegotiate our, our lease, uh, which was actually up in the summer. And, you know, we will, we will be a fully remote organization uh, until at least January 1. What has that been like for you to pivot? Because, I mean, you had prime real estate in Manhattan for Charity Water. And you talked about that, I think, the last time I had you on. The first time I had you on, you talked all about the office and what it was look, looking like and why you designed it that way. And now suddenly you're in rural Pennsylvania and you're leading a $100 million company on a bad internet connection. Like, how is that working? <laughs> Well, you make it sound pretty awful. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. You're with everybody else and you got kids, you know. We had an extraordinary uh, space that, um, you know, over a million dollars was donated by contractors and the likes of Samsung. And yeah. um, it, it was a digital office with a virtual reality room, um, augmented reality experiences, huge 10 foot light boxes of water exploding from the ground and parts of Africa and, and India. And so it was a, it was kind of a visual expression of our work, trying to just make it tangible. So people would come into the office, you know, there's 120 people working there. There was an energy, there was a buzz. Um, I, I mean, I, I've actually had donors throw their wallets down on conference tables and write, you know, half a million dollar checks. Wow. Just being so inspired by the energy. So that's, that's, that's difficult. Uh, not having that, I don't think we will ever go back to that same configuration. I just don't think we are occupying 35,000 square foot in, in Tribeca uh, next year. Um, right. That said, I'm, I'm really excited about the opportunity to reinvent and, and work with the team. What could it look like for Charity Water to take space? Is it 30 hot desks and 80% of the space dedicated to a, da- to a gallery? to, you know, a, a really explosion, explosive uh, museum-like or experiential uh, narrative that people come in. And there's one conference room or two conference rooms instead of eight. Um, mm. I, I don't know the answer to that, but I think this is going to be kind of the great reimagination uh, or, or, you know, reinvention for a lot of groups. Uh, half of our team members have gone home. So half of our team members have left New York City. Many of them are with their families. Uh, what I'm hearing from some of them is that they're not really excited about coming back. Right. And that they, you know, I mean, you go from, um, I don't know, you go from living in a tiny apartment with two roommates in Brooklyn, New York, to visit your family in Des Moines, Iowa, or Orlando, or Boise, Idaho, or Omaha, Nebraska, or Canada, where we have some team members. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you just start, you start questioning the city. You start questioning quality of life, uh, a, a little bit of the rush and hurry and, and, and the struggle. Uh, yep. and, and, and I'm hearing that this is happening in a lot of urban areas with a lot of, a lot of my friends who are leading companies in San Francisco, LA, uh, you know, the, the Miamis, people are just saying, we probably don't need to live in those cities for a while. Hmm. We don't want to. What's the biggest change and, you've and, noticed? And I'm the New Yorkest yeah. guy. You know, yeah, you are. I mean, you did the whole nightclub scene, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I've never imagined living anywhere outside of New York. So I, I don't know. This could just be a temporary season. This could be nine or 12 months for us. And and we get excited about jumping back into New York City as a family, uh, back into the school system next year, or, or a different change. Um, you know, if the organization were to continue remotely, and, and again, that's still a huge question. I mean, I've got, I've got leadership team members that are talking about moving to Italy. Uh, and, and, you know, you're going to see this. I mean, many of our, we know a bunch of distributed companies. So we know a bunch of people who have built very, very successful billion dollar companies, uh, with a distributed workforce. So this has been done before. It's never really been our path because so much of our time is spent working with donors face to face with supporters, touring them through our headquarters. But I just think that's going to change anyway. And if I only had 20 people in an office that used to have 120, they wouldn't be a very good tour. It would, it would lack right. that energy, that, that right. dynamism, the explosive uh, sense of mission and purpose. It would feel like an empty office. So you're rethinking all that. What's, uh, what's been the biggest, because we're going to get into charity water and you know the whole pivot everybody's doing. We're, we're going to get into... Uh, the funding model, which I really want to talk to you about in a, a horrible, like down economy. My goodness, that's the most mild expression you can have of it, but but a completely different economy. But I'd love to know just from a leadership standpoint, Scott, what's been uh, the biggest surprise in leading a distributed or remote team? How productive the team has been. <laughs> uh, how productive the meetings have been. How hard everybody has been working despite having young kids at home, despite having to homeschool, uh, the, the emails coming in at you know, 10.30 p.m., 6 a.m., the amount of dedication to the mission, the amount of discipline across the board, across every part of the organization, across every department, I, I think myself and the whole leadership team, we've just been, we've been so impressed. We've been so blown away. Uh, I, I, I did, uh, we, we all do something called office hours where, you know, eight, mm. eight team members can just sign up and jump on zoom calls with myself or our CFO or a chief water officer or COO. And about half the people I talked to were just talking about that efficiency. I'm more efficient. The meetings are better. When we've solved the problem, we just get off the call. You know, we're not running out the clock of the hour meeting, you know, cause we're, we're going back to our families or we're going back mm. to you know, the, the life that's going on around us as, as many people, you know, are quarantined with elderly or, or you know, you've, you've got to cook, cook lunch for your kids. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you, you've already indicated that this has caused you, and we're recording this two months in, it'll air a little bit later, I think in June, but you're already saying you've done a reset of some kind in how you'd, if all things went back to normal tomorrow, which probably they're not going to, uh, you would rethink how you lead charity water. How much, that, that gets us into sort of the, the question I'm asking all the leaders I'm talking to in this season. Uh, there's still a few voices, not a lot, but mostly in church world that are like, this is an interruption, not a disruption. Um, I would love your take on that. Interruption, I, disruption, how deep a I disruption? Just, I think it's a deep disruption. I mean, I am an optimist, 90 percent of the time, maybe yep. rounds up to 99% of the time. And many people that get into this um, field of social entrepreneurship, many of the founders 
of organizations, the Gary Haugens of the world, the Bob Pierce's of world vision, the, uh, you know, the, these are people with a, an exuberant, irrational optimism, mm-hmm. right? We are going to get every single human being on earth access to clean water, right? Gary is going to make sure that no child is ever a slave, you know, at the end of the mission, right? There's this kind of belief that we can do this. We can make sure nobody goes to bed hungry or, or make sure everybody has a roof over their head and shelter. I think when it comes to this, and I have the benefit of talking to so many you know, Fortune 100 CEOs and leaders, I am really pessimistic. I think the yeah. worst is yet to come. Uh, I think there's going to be an economic calamity. The, the market is not behaving rationally right now. I don't think we right. return back to the highs. I think the bottom drops out of this thing at some point because the damage has been done. So even right. so much damage has been done. I was talking to a guy the other day, uh, a major donor of ours, he owns eight restaurants. He said, I'm just going to let them all fail. I would have to put so much money into reviving these eight restaurants. At some point in the future, it's going to be much cheaper to start more restaurants. Wow. So you know, I, I'm hearing you know data points. I mean, uh, today when we recorded this, Airbnb just laid off 25% of the workforce. Oh, I miss that. Wow. Yeah, J. Crew went bankrupt the week a uh, couple of days ago. Uh, Uber today announcing huge layoffs. You know, these are explosive, high growth companies, and they're finding that their their industries uh, are not interrupted. Their industries are disrupted. Um, you know, over the weekend, you know, we found out that Warren Buffett was sitting, I think, on fifty billion dollars of cash. He's not investing because he, he said he doesn't see any bargains right now. Doesn't and he and he divested from the airline industry. Now that was his big play. He was buying Delta stock like crazy, and at a loss, you know, he's divested from. So again, not an interruption if you're Delta or United or American Airlines. Not an interruption if you're Marriott or you're in the restaurant business, or you're in the rideshare business, this is a complete co- complete disruption. I would argue that many charities are unfortunately going to fall into the disruption category. Uh, it depends on their missions. It depends on their funding streams. But what I'm, what I'm worried about for us specifically, so Charity Water, for people that don't know, we, we work in 28 countries around the world. Uh, we're focused on the 10% of the planet that is drinking bad water right now. Mm-hmm. 785 million people, as we record this, are headed to a swamp or a pond or a contaminated river to drink, bathe with, wash their hands uh, with water that could potentially kill them. So that's been our mission for 13 years. We've raised close to half a billion dollars thanks to the generosity of, of millions of people around the world. And we've gotten 11 million people clean water. So we've helped 11 out of the 780 million. Um, We were in high growth. I mean, we we saw Mm -hmm. each other. You know, we've been growing 35% a year for three years. Um, I would have told, I would have put our probability of raising well over $105 million this year in the high 98%, you know, 98 to 99%. Now I think we're going to raise about half of that. We're seeing corporates, um, we, many of our corporate partnerships, they're not even sure they have a corporate entity um, as they navigate through this. Um, some of our partners are laying off 50 percent of their staff. Um, one partner, a long-term partner the charity waters work with, they've given over 10 million dollars, laid off 10,000 employees. 
My goodness. They're, they're, you know, they're, we're, we're just kind of, we're, we're feeling it. Um, the, the other thing that affects us, we also raise a lot of money from micro donors, people who are giving 10 bucks a month, 20 bucks a month. We've seen churn or people leaving our subscription program spike dramatically as many of, of our givers find themselves unemployed. Mm-hmm. And they write us hundreds of people on the way out say, we love Charity Water. This pains our family to have to cut back on our giving, but we don't have a job. We lost our business. Wow. So, you know, many of them are in the 30 million unemployed. Do many of them bounce back? Absolutely. But I think there's, you know, in the best case scenario, the best case scenario that I have heard from any leader is a two-year recovery. Uh, mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from most CEOs is three to four-year recoveries. And what I'm worried about, and, and we talked about this a little bit, you know, just back channel, I'm worried that a lot of nonprofits will run out of cash and go bankrupt and, and cease to exist and, and cease to, to carry out their important mission because the timing of this thing is really unfortunate. So many of us raise, well, it's unfortunate if it plays out poorly. So many of us raise a huge amount of our money in Q4, November and yes. December. Charity Water will raise 70% of our money in the last two months of the year. Mm. That's when the galas are happening for many yep. nonprofits. And what I'm hearing is this optimism. I'm hearing the interruption and everything's going to be back to normal by the end of the year. And givers are going to make up for lost time and the gala is going to be the best one yet. And I, I just don't believe that that's true. Mm. And I, I, I think, you know, what, what I've been, uh, I, I mentor a, a few social entrepreneurs uh, and I've just been telling them cut costs, cut costs hard and fast and make sure you're, you're alive to see the other side. Uh, and and plan for a, a much longer time than than you think you know you might be planning for. I mean, a lot of people, you know, a lot of people don't really remember you know what happened in two thousand eight and two thousand nine. It took Jobs six years to recover. It took GDP five years to recover. It took net worth four years to recover. You know, and that was two thousand eight, two thousand nine. That wasn't just a, a complete shutdown, a yeah. off of the economy. So I'm. I think there's also going to be a macro shift to local giving, which is, is hmm. certainly not a bad thing. It's, 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 uh, it's going to be a, a bad thing for people like us who are working in Africa and India and Southeast Asia and, you know, working with communities on a dollar or two a day. Um, I think we're going to see a shift to the food banks. Uh, hyper-local. Hyper, yeah. Hyper-local. GoFundMes, right, where, hmm. where friends or our medical workers are in need or our you know, I've got a bunch of friends that are on unemployment that are in the, in the restaurant nightclub business. And they just, yeah. there's no restaurants or nightclubs for them to work at. In New York yeah, City. Industries are being wiped out, right? That's the weird part. It's not just like companies, but like the airline industry, where's the future on that? It's going to look really different, radically different. Air Canada, which I fly out of Toronto, just recorded a uh, billion dollar loss in the first quarter. That's with a B. It's like, you know, those, those things you don't recover from in a month or two, you know, or maybe you don't recover from that. That's the New York times said yesterday, uh, that the largest U S airlines, the Americans and deltas and United's are averaging 17 passengers on domestic flights. When is the last time you've been on a 757 or 727 with 17 people on it? They're averaging 29 passengers on international flights. Wow. So, I'm, I'm, so I, again, you know, th- this is not a lack of faith or, you know, <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. 
we are going to do everything we can to create opportunity, to remain optimistic, to carry on the mission. But there's a real, uh, there's a real preservation moment or, or message that I'm, I'm hoping people get because I'm seeing the agile tech companies make these, these quick moves. They're cutting 30% right away. And then they've got a plan to cut 50% um, because they, they want to make sure that they can see the other side. And it's a lot easier to build back if, if it is uh, an interruption, right? It's a lot easier to kind of, you know how to kind go and- rehire, and, yeah. Yeah, re- rehire, restore those functions, start spending money you know, on those innovation side products. I mean, the, the, the Brian Chesky note from Airbnb, Airbnb is a great one. I mean, they're basically shutting down all the exploratory side businesses to focus on the core. Right. Right. Just focus on the main thing. Scott, I want to drill down on this uh, some more. And I don't disagree with you. I mean, as much as I'm listening to you going, oh, I hope that's not true. Oh, I hope that's not true. I think it's, it's fools who pretend it's not true, right? Uh, like, I think that's the definition. The difference between wisdom and foolishness is you've got to see truth and try to adjust yourself to it rather than trying to deny or adjust the truth. So if this is coming and, you know, that looks with some likelihood that it may be, um, we need to prepare for it. But I'd love for you to break down. I know you did this on uh, the first time you were on the, the show, but if you can just give us a, a brief breakdown of your business model, because uh, yeah. you mentioned the two tiers of the well and then the general donors. But then I, I want to drill down with you how the disruption has impacted both sides, because I think that's really, really important because there's a lot of church leaders, business leaders who are like, well, I've got donors who have deeper pockets. I have you know, maybe the millennials yeah. can't give, but we got, we got some people who can give. I'd love for you to explain your business model and the impact that what's currently happening is having on each side. Sure. So 13 years ago, again, the mission, very clear. We're going to bring clean and safe drinking water to people in need around the world. Uh, that, that's 785 million people. So we have 11 different technologies. We drill wells. We build rainwater harvesting systems, gravity-fed systems. We work with about 1,200 locals uh, around the world, across the portfolio, to the end of clean, safe drinking water uh, in a sustainable way. So that was the mission. When I started 13 years ago, I realized that so many people out there uh, don't trust charities. Uh, it's really the simplest way to put it. Uh, I'd come across a USA Today poll that found 42% of Americans responded and said they just didn't trust charities writ large. More recently, NYU did a study on charitable trust, found 70% of people believe charities wasted their money. Hmm. 70% of people believe that when they gave money to a charity, uh, a portion of it was wasted. So I thought, wow, uh, that stinks. I mean, you know, the fact that there (laughs) is distrust, charity is a beautiful word. It means love. It's caritas in the Latin. Charity means to, Hmm. to help your neighbor in need and get nothing in return. We need more people moving towards that, right? We need less cynicism about love, about give, giving uh, without strings. And, and I thought, well, what if – I just started asking people, Carrie, what would be the perfect charity? What would, what would make you want to give? And I mm. kept hearing I'd, – I'd know exactly where my money went. I'd know exactly where my money went, and I would know the impact my money had on human lives. And that sounds so basic. But that's actually not how some of the biggest charities are set up. They're set up to just continually keep asking for money and be as opaque in a way as possible about how that money is spent. So I thought, well, what if we just split the overhead 
from the programs, we opened up two separate bank accounts and we could say to everybody, 100% of your gift, whether you give $1 or $1 million, 100% of your gift will go directly to fund water projects, number one. And then number two, we will prove every single water project and we will close the loop. We'll create this, uh, this proof loop, this circle, uh, this kind of virtuous circle where you, you can see your impact. Yeah. Um, and then the third pillar was just, we're going to work with locals. No, nobody from New York City needs to be running around uh, with a hard hat on in, in Kenya or Ethiopia drilling a well. We can go and identify the local groups, the local hydrogeologists. We'll buy them the drilling rigs. We'll help them scale and increase the capacity of their organizations. Uh, people in Ethiopia, uh, Ethiopian drillers leading their communities and, and country forward with you know, hopefully the money that we're able to raise. So that was kind of that side. Yeah, and then yeah. on the overhead side, I needed to go and find people who wanted to pay for staff salaries, office rent, flights around the world, and the toner for the Epson copy machine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I, I wrote a book about this. There were so many challenges. We almost went bankrupt. Uh, you and I have talked about this. I don't mm-hmm. recommend the 100% model to others, yeah. but it was right for us and the problem we were trying to solve 13 years ago. We've never wavered from that. And today at scale, uh, the way it works, there are 135 high net worth families that pay for all the overhead. The overhead this year was, was t- over $20 million. So it's a, it's a significant amount of capital to pay over 100 salaries in the office and the flights and the audits and just all the kind of behind the scenes yeah. uh, of Charity Water. So it's 135 people. Most of them are entrepreneurs. So right. in that group of people, it's been the founders of Pinterest, Spotify, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, people who have built companies and know that without the people, without that office or, you know, w- without the, the flights around doing business development, uh, meeting people, there is no, no business. So they have loved right. paying for the overhead. Uh, and those, those families give uh, $100,000 a year and up. So it's a, it's a significant Amazing. commitment. That then has allowed bank account too, the water bank account, over a million donors from 140 countries to give a dollar, ten dollars, a thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars, and know exactly where that goes. Now we're so uh, we're so kind of crazy about the integrity of that hundred percent model. We even pay back credit card fees. Yeah. So if you went online after this and you you gave a hundred dollars, and you use your American Express, I wish I got a hundred dollars, but American Express unfortunately takes about four bucks, mm-hmm. and I get ninety six dollars. But I actually go to those hundred thirty five families and I pull four dollars from their overhead donation. I put it back together with your 96. I send the hundred to go build a water project and then I track it. Yeah. So it's been a, it's been a pretty uh, u- unique business model. Um, so we have two very different supporters. We've got six year old kids sending in $8 and 15 cents of their allowance. We have uh, a, a little girl in Vancouver who was, uh, I think she was eight, did 12 lemonade stands for charity oh, water, sending that wow. money. So we've got this, grassroots, passionate, vibrant community of small givers. And then we've got high net worths. We're going to see impact on both. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, many of the, the, the well program, which pays for the overhead, is a three-year program. And what I'm hearing from some of our donors is they're going to scale back on multi-year commitments. Uh, so that was the first place they cut. It's like, I don't know what the future is going to hold, so I can't do it oh, three Let's year. go year by year. But right. for an organization like ours, the planning is so important, knowing that, you know, that we have that income coming in for three years. 
we've been able to do a really good job at when those three-year giving cycles end, we're able not only to renew uh, most of those families, but actually upgrade many of them. They've gotten to know the organization better. Maybe they've come uh, on a family trip uh, to the field to actually see the work in, in person. Uh, what I'm hearing from, from some families is, you know, hey, I'm going to finish my commitment, but I'm just going to be unable to, to continue. Um, my business has taken a hit. My investment portfolio has taken a hit. Um, I think the, un- the uncertainty will create a challenge for us with a lot of major donors. Hmm. Yeah. And that's interesting. Just to um, play devil's advocate or, or that kind of thing, there'd be some people who would say, well, wait a minute, Scott, you know, these guys are worth millions or in some cases, billion dollars. Why wouldn't they just keep giving? I don't understand. But any thoughts on that? Some will. Some yeah. will. But in that, there's aspirational giving. Many of those families, this is the biggest gift that they're giving to anybody and they're giving out of income. They're not giving out a billion dollar wealth. Right. So, uh, you know, we have, we have contractors. We have home builders in that program who are just, they're not sure they have a business. We have dentists in that program. You know, uh, nobody's been to the dentist for months. You know, they're, they're, so in that, there are, there are people that are deeply affected who, who may not have, you know, the entity that they've been giving from on the other side. Yeah, that's fair. And then what about the truly high net worth individuals who are worth, let's say, 10 to $100 million or above, sort of in that, that range? Uh, is their thinking around giving also impacted by the current uncertainty? Well, one thing I've, I've heard, Carrie, is they're getting hit up from all the charities <laughs> that they support yeah. uh, to save them. Right, right. Like, you can do it. You're the person that if you write the check, we're going to be around. And that's going to continue. And that's going to continue. And uh, I think in some ways I'm, how do I say this? I'm worried for those organizations because it's not a great look. You know, when, when, yeah. you're, when you're calling people and you're, you're effectively making withdrawals, mm-hmm. constantly saying, please help me save a few jobs over here. Please help me pay the rent for June, you know, so we don't get evicted. That's typically not what I've found uh, high net worth donors want in effective leadership in an organization. They want organizations that have plans, that are strategic, that are willing to uh, make sacrifices to, to navigate through this time and not just, you know, keep asking for money. Um, from right. some of the same people. It's like the relative who's always broke otherwise, right? It's like, what do you need this month? <laughs> you get you get into that yeah. space pretty quickly. And at quickly. some point, you stop giving that relative money. Yep. So I got to ask you, Scott, what is right now, sort of everything's timestamped these days, but <clears throat> if you're on a phone call with a high net worth investor in the well, I think you call it, what is your pitch? What is your approach rather than, gosh, just help us pay the rent, or I just don't want to lay off people. So what, what, what is your It's a lot of pitch? gratitude, Carrie. I just didn't want you to <laughs> it, is, it is a lot of gratitude. Um, we, we had three families contribute $18 million in total the last week of wow. December uh, of last year. And I am deeply grateful to all three of those families hmm. uh, for, for those gifts. And I've 
you know, I think my message to that community is, hey, we're making cuts. Okay, we're not just yeah. pretending that everything is going to be, you know, that we're, we're not um, embracing the status quo here. You know, we're not walking around with blinders on, just just hoping to ignore it and everything's going to go away. Um, I've I've heard a deep uh, respect because of that, and I've heard some because because that's what their companies are doing. You know, many of them are venture capitalists. They've invested in a bunch of portfolio companies, and they're telling their companies, "Cut your opex burn, preserve capital, make sure you right. can get through to the other side." So. That, that's kind of you know what they're telling me to do, and then and then when they've heard that we've already done that, there's there's almost a surprise hmm. and a sense of gratitude is probably not the right word, but they're they're really relieved. I think they're relieved that you know that that we're um, that we're seeing the sobriety of the situation. Um, I've also I'm pretty I'm hitting the message pretty hard at the moment, Carrie that. Those donors have helped us equip 11 million people across 50,000 villages in 28 countries for a moment like this. Clean water is literally the first line of defense against the virus. Go on the CDC website, number one is wash your hands before social distancing. And again, 90% of the world, we take clean water for granted. You know, and but just think, you know, if you're listening to to this conversation, just think about how your relationship with water may have changed over the last, you know, couple of months. I mean, my oh, kids yeah. now, my five year old is washing his hands five times a day. You know, the Amazon guy comes with a box and he's like, "Is the virus on the box?" I'm like, "I don't know." You know, he washes his hands. And yep. so, ten ten percent of the world doesn't have the clean water to protect themselves. But you know, our donor community has readied. 11 million people. And, and many of our partners are out there. I've been getting pictures from the field from Ethiopia and other countries of charity water wells with hand washing stations and people social distancing as they come to get their water, sitting on oh yellow goodness. jerry cans six feet apart. So they're going out there really educating the communities about how to keep themselves safe. Because let me just go down to the next level. There are no ventilators, Carrie, in a lot of the countries where we work. Yeah. Not are there enough ventilators? There's, no. There's not a single ventilator. One out of three health clinics around the world don't have clean water. Man. 33% of the health clinics around the world don't even have clean water on the premises, let alone a ventilator. Um, I remember when I, when I got I started this with Mercy Ships on, uh, on the hospital ship off of the coast of Liberia, you know, we had a 500-foot ship. Uh, 42 bed ward, three operating theaters. And I remember someone telling me at the time we had the only CT scanner in the four neighboring countries. On all ship. of us have got CT scan, you know, at some point. So yeah. I, 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 it's it's hard to impress just how under equipped the medical facilities uh, in many of these regions where we were would be for an outbreak. Uh, which is why it's so important that they're able to keep their their elderly, uh, their loved ones safe um, by you know using clean water and, and social distancing. So you know we're starting to see the numbers spike a little bit in Africa. You know India yeah. took it very seriously as you as you saw with the shutdown there. I think TBD the next few weeks are going to be really indicative. You know were some of these regions spared or 
you know, are, are we going to see some real, you know, sense of loss and, and suffering? But I love what you've done there. You've tied the appeal back to the vision and look at the difference you've already made. Look at how important this is for the future. Clean water actually is at the heart of this challenge and the best line of defense. And you're making a real difference. And here's our plan. And we've already made some cuts. That feels like a fairly compelling case. Now, Scott, I got to ask you when you're when you're thinking because everyone's making new plans every thirty days these days, right? But I mean, are you are you doing six months projections, a one year projections, uh, multiple scenarios? How are you doing the actual planning? You know, and I, I realize you're you're aiming at a moving target, so I get that. But any insights for leaders on to how to be thinking about that in the future? So I'm a, I'm a believer in you know two scenarios. You okay. in a situation like this, you cut fifteen to twenty percent right away, right away, and yeah, and that, that twenty five overnight non, just gone. That's often yeah. non personnel, right? You can cut marketing, you can cut some travel, um, you can cut, uh, you know, some Salesforce licenses maybe that you don't need, right? There's yeah, there's there's often just money and fat to find right away. So I, I think, you know, if people haven't done that, well, you're six weeks late on that, or hmm. when this comes out, you're three months late on that. Then I think, you know, you need a much more serious, you know, 40 to 50% uh, reduction um, because if your revenue is going to be down 50%, uh, you know, there's all these dynamics to play for a charity. There's efficiency and, you know, how, for the, the program, the, the admin and fundraising dollars we spend, how many programs dollars are we leveraging that into? You know, so that we have all these different KPIs, but um, we, we've made um, two rounds. Um, and that'll be, that'll get us through the end of the year. And now I just need the data to play out over the next six months. Um, I'll, I'll revisit that in December and January one could be a point where we either unfortunately have to, to cut even more costs or we're rebuilding or we're hiring like crazy. Right. So when you say two rounds, what do you mean by two rounds, two rounds well, we of made, budget um, adjustments? Two rounds of, of budget adjustments. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. But, That's but I think super you know, one, one, one piece of advice that, again, that I've heard from many of the leaders that I've talked to is you cut hard and fast. You don't do it in the, seri- you know, the death by a thousand cuts. And that's the instinct right. is because we have such limited data. We want to believe for the best. And then next month you're cutting more as the data is bad. And then the next month you're cutting more. And you wind up just killing your culture because everybody's looking over their shoulder. And it's, it is, it actually could be the death by a thousand cuts scenario. So that seems to be the conventional leadership wisdom that I'm hearing is, you know, do what you need to do or a little more than you think you need to do. And then buy yourself the time to either uh, be wrong because you're a little too conservative and then you're rehiring and you're building again. Um, or, you know, you, you, you got it pretty close and, you know, you have the time to make those adjustments, the further adjustments if you really need to keep scaling back. Uh, it's really, really helpful, practical advice. I'd love to talk about the other side of donations because anybody who's ever tried sorry, to raise sorry, money. Okay. The last yeah. thing, just, I think there's two distinct phases. So the first is okay. preservation, preserve the mission, cut uh, how, you know, uh, can, you, can you make your cash last? The goal is to stay alive long enough to see your mission through to the other side. Okay, get through that. Then number two, it's all about opportunity. 
Okay. Mm. So if we have lost a bunch of corporate opportunity, there are a bunch of corporates, millions of dollars that have just gone away, just like that overnight, millions of dollars that we were counting on this year that we've been told by our corporate partners is going to be zero this year for a bunch of different reasons. But there are other companies that are doing great. Yeah. There are other organizations and companies that would have tailwinds. So now how do we find our way uh, into those connections, those relationships? How do we approach them? How do we message? How do we find the right strategic placement? So uh, that, you know, now I'm trying to move you know, the whole team into opportunity everywhere. We launched a COVID fund uh, that will raise over a million dollars. And that is specifically to build hand-washing stations to, to, to teach hygiene and, the, and use the, using the clean water often that we've already provided uh, around the world. So I, I think there's just two phases and it's kind of, I, I find them very hard to do them both at the same time. So I want to kind mm. of get through the austerity, you know, reduce the budget, uh, make sure we, we can get through this time and then move everybody to focus on opportunity. And reimagination of what things shouldn't you be doing? You know, again, I, I think the Airbnb letter is a is a good one to read because, you know, Airbnb has been growing like crazy. They had, oh gosh, thousands and thousands of employees, forty seven hundred employees, I think, and they were mm-hmm. buying companies. They had labs over here. I mean, they were testing anything that smacked, you know, of relevance to travel. Yeah. And in this time, you know, those are many of the things that you shut down. Or maybe you actually invest in a couple of them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Like, and you're right. There are some organizations and some individuals that do have tailwinds right now. You know, DoorDash brings to mind. They are actually having the best year of their life. Uh, Zoom's got a few issues, but let's just put it this way. Their revenue base just grew. And so if one source dries up, that doesn't mean this is not a level playing field. Everybody's been hit, but not everybody's been hit in the same way. And I think that's really good. I've got to ask you, Scott, how did you create this framework? Like, you know, like you were saying, you would have 98%, you were sure you're going to hit 100 million this year and this was great. And everyone felt that way in February. And then March, boom, a bomb goes off. So how did you in 60 days when we're recording this go from that hyper-optimistic scenario as an optimist to, okay, we're going to do two rounds of cuts, then we're going to look for opportunities this is how I'm going to approach my investors. This is how I'm going to read the future. Like that's an awful lot of, I'd love to know your, your thought process and your framework for landing here. Some of it is gut. Some yeah. of it is just, uh, just the feeling of mm-hmm. where it's going and how it's going to play out. Um, it was the gut that you know, caused us to close our office the first week of March. So that is, that is definitely a part of it. I would say then it's kind of trying out that hypothesis on dozens and dozens of smart people. So I've probably had 60 conversations with CEOs, CMOs, uh, entrepreneurs, our donors, you know, I, I, and I'm asking them, I'm like, here's how I'm thinking about it. How are you thinking about it? Am I wrong? Should I be more bullish? Should I be more optimistic? And what I'm hearing from all of them is no. If anything, three-year cycle, four-year cycle. Yeah, I talked to a, I talked to a, a very astute CEO who is on TV all the time, and he's probably in his 60s, uh, 
sits on the boards of, of three, you know, Fortune 100 companies. And he put his entire net worth in cash, he sold his foundation, put it in cash, put his 401k in cash. So then you kind of get these, these signals back and you try to assimilate all the data and just make decisions on the, on the data that you have, but, but make quick decisions and not be paralyzed. That's great advice. You know, I've probably like everybody, my phone's blown up and I've spent so much time just doing exactly what you said. Okay, what do you think? And nobody's been through this before. It's not like, oh yeah, this is just like 1978. No, it wasn't. It's totally different than anything you've been through. Uh, but I think that that wisdom has an abundance of counselors line from scripture really plays true. I'd love to talk about the I mean, other it's not side. Fear, Kerry. Yeah. You know, I, I did no, a, no, no. a podcast with um, with one church, and you know, I was saying some of this stuff, and some of the comments were like, "Oh, that's a that's a fear based, you know, um, mindset." It's actually not fear. It's <laughs> you know, there's not there's not as if you if you do this kind of stuff, then you don't need to be fearful. <laughs> right? It's the, it's the, it's the inaction that then leads to a paralyzing fear, you know, where somebody has to save the day. And if you don't get that million dollars at the last minute, you're bankrupt. Yeah. So I, I am, I'm actually optimistic. I think there are going to be amazing opportunities for charity water that come from this. I think the issue of clean water is going to be more top of mind, more relevant than ever before as the world goes through this cycle. Um, I think it's going to be a really hard couple of years and we're going to raise mm-hmm. a lot less money. Um, I think the organization could be stronger on the other side of this and could grow, you know, even more explosively because, because of some of the, the steps that we've taken now. So it's, again, I just, I want to make sure that people don't think that we're operating from some sort of, you know, we're all huddled together or fearful. Um, I, I bet Brian Chesky at Airbnb believes the same thing. It's going to be a really tough couple of years for the travel industry, but Airbnb is a great idea and it's going to be a great idea three years from now and five years from now and 10 years from now. And there's a chance that, you know, the 4,700 employees they had pre COVID, they could be at 10,000 employees a few years from now. They could be a double that. Um, But the reality is it's going to be a really hard time for that industry for a while. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, there's so many different factors. I mean, when you think about travel, there's, do people have the money to travel? What does that look like? What about safety? What about airlines? What about borders? And then do they even want to travel? Or is this a values thing? It's like you were saying, you know, we'll see if if the depopulization of uh, urban areas is a trend that stands up in a year or two. But human behavior changes all the time. And I think you're right to have a lean operating structure, preserve the mission, and then be in a position to actually seize the opportunities as they present themselves is, is, is great, Scott. What about the micro donors, the $10 a month, $8 a month, $30 a month people who are funding the actual work you do outside of your high net worth that funds the well? Um, what are you seeing there? What are you sensing there? And because, I mean, every church, every organization that raises money realizes, you know, and even if you run a coffee shop, it's like, well, are we moving into the era of the $2 coffee rather than the $6 coffee? Like, how, how does that work? Yeah, it's a real mix. So people are joining the program, which is hmm. uh, our, our program is called The Spring. Yeah. Uh, that's our community. They're joining because they are moved by the issue, the mission. They've heard about it. Uh, they've got jobs and they, they have that money to give. Uh, and then we're hearing people are leaving because they're they're cutting all charitable giving. We we have a pretty good exit 
uh, interview process. So when you uh, when you leave the spring community, I don't know, by the way, the, the best that I've ever seen is Hulu's. You know, it is almost really? impossible to leave Hulu. <laughs> oh, I leave at Hulu sometime. They're like, do you want to skip for a couple of months? How about half price? <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like a negotiation. It's like you're 10 pages in before they let you leave. Anyway, on the way out of the spring, we just say, how could we have been better? You know, we hate losing uh, monthly givers. What would you have liked to see from us? Was it more reporting? Was it different features? Was what, what was it? More storytelling? What was it? And people write us back and then... I actually write everybody. We have, we have a little script that goes out from my personal email uh, every day to all the people that left the program saying, hey, I'm, I'm Scott Harris and I'm working on this. I really care about this community. I believe it's the future of Charity Water. Can you just give me any feedback if they didn't leave it on the form? So I'm having hundreds of people write me really sad stories, Carrie, of losing job, of, uh, of you know, a divorce, of, you know, I can't pay. I'm cutting all my giving. It pains me that you know, people are not going to get clean water because I can't give every month. But a, a lot of people leaving just due to economic um, hardship, I guess you yep. could say, in, in that. Um, the other thing I'm hearing from them is that they're giving locally. So I'll hear mm. from some people, I've shifted all of my giving to the local food pantry or right. to, you know, to my community in need. Mm. So I think it's a mix there. It's a mix. New people joining... Uh, in some ways we become, some people become more globally minded. We're all in this together. Right. And wow. I mean, imagine getting COVID-19 in Ethiopia or in a slum in Kenya without having the clean water. And so, um, great. I can, I can sew into this mission. I can join this community and then others just finding themselves unable to get. Again, we're just trying to communicate a lot. So with everybody, with all of our members, I'm making videos, you know, from this little attic up here, talking about what our partners are doing, thanking them for giving. It's the message for that community is we see you. We don't take you for granted. We know many of you are giving uh, and it's harder now. It, it comes at a greater sacrifice. Let us tell you how important your gift is. Let us tell you how important the issue of clean water is now more than ever before. Hmm. So if, if I come to you, I'm going to say face-to-face, but right now as we're recording this, that wouldn't happen. And I say, Scott, I love you, man. I've been a supporter of Charity Water for five years, but I got 30 bucks a month to give. I just feel I've got to support my local food bank. What do you say to me? I'm going to say, I'm going to say go do it. Okay. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, come back anytime. Um, I, hmm. I, you know, I've, I've, um, I've offered refunds to people. Wow. From giving. I, I've gone on PayPal personally and sent people a hundred bucks for the last three or five months of giving because they really fell under financial hardship. And I had the hundred bucks that I could send them. So no, there's no sense of you shouldn't be doing that or, or stick with it. It's thank you so much for your past support of our work. Uh, it is needed now more than ever. You've really helped prepare a bunch of people for this. And if you ever want to come back, uh, we're here. We'll we'll be continuing the mission. We'd love to have you back at at, at any level. Okay, I'm going to ask this question. <laughs> it's a little awkward, but I think it's a great question. Why do you give that answer, which I agree with, rather than the final plea to support Charity Water over all else? Why why is that the better answer in your mind? 
that's just who we are. I, I, we're, yeah. we're, curiosity is a core value of the organization. We're, we're grateful people. That's kind of in, in our handbook. Um, we, you, you don't need, we, you don't owe us anything. You know, mm. we're, we, this is an invitation. We are hoping to do such compelling, excellent, uh, efficient, inspiring work in the service of humanity, in the service of others through clean water that people want to join. And then we hope to continue that relationship where we continue to inspire you and we continue to, uh, to report back on your donations. But I don't, I don't think you owe us anything. Uh, and, and if you want to go help that local food bank, I mean, by all means, there, there's just no, there's no sense of uh, angst or, or animosity. And we'd love to have you back uh, at some point. And that could be five years from now or 10 years from now. Or we'd love to have you keep giving to that local food bank who really needs your money. Hmm. That's so good. You know what that leaves me in this role play feeling like? It makes me feel like you're my friend. It makes me feel like you're for me. And it makes me feel like if I ever knock on your door again, I'm going to be received with open arms, which I think a lot of church leaders could learn from right now. And probably some business leaders as well, right? The open hand is probably the strongest hand. I just love that. Thanks. Thanks for going there. Yeah. It's funny, just since you were talking, uh, one came in right now. Um, hmm. I'll just give his initials, E-O. And he said, it is purely an economic issue for us. Having just stopped working, we must focus on debt reduction. God bless your efforts to bring this life-sustaining resource to those who not have it. So I'll write him back yeah. and say, best of luck. Sometimes, you know, I hope your family gets back on your feet or I'll write a personal email. I mean, I'll do... 20 of these a day and just say, you know, uh, you know, wishing you the best or like, you know, I'm, I'm confident you're going to get another job or I'm confident you'll be back on your feet. Thanks so much for your past support. It means a lot to us and, you know, we'll be here. That's so good. And to know that's coming from a CEO of what was, or, you know, and will be again, a hundred million dollar company is really meaningful. Lots and lots of leaders should be taking notes right now. Scott, I got to ask you this because you've said it numerous times in the previous interview, and I'm just curious if you could break it down. You said, we've got this model, and I'm really intrigued by it. Like when you first shared it with me, when we first met and I heard about it, I was like, that's a really cool model. Like if I was still lead pastor, I'd be thinking about like the well versus general donations, the spring versus the well, that kind of thing. But you say you wouldn't you wouldn't recommend it to every, everybody. Can you just say what some of the biggest challenges with your split model, if you can call it that, have been for you, even sure. pre-COVID? Sure. I mean, we're we're now a pretty mature organization. Thirteen years in, you know, we have one hundred and thirty-five families. We're supporting the overhead, so it's you know we're we're kind of distributed. The risk is distributed, right? If if some of them aren't doing well, others could be doing very well. The existential business model risk is that we could raise $100 million for clean water projects in one bank account and in the other bank account, miss payroll, mm -hmm. right? And, and not be able to pay 120 people to go out and effectively administer the $100 million. So we have to do this dance and we have to keep both bank accounts working in perfect balance with each other. And we've had to do that for 13 years. We've actually been able to do that. Uh, you know, I read about, an, uh, I wrote a book called thirst a couple, I guess it was last year. Yeah, yeah. And I wrote about a moment where we almost went bankrupt and we, we got bailed out 
but we were unwilling to compromise or to borrow from the, you know, at the time it was almost a million dollars in the water bank account to, you know, to pay payroll or for staff. And, and it was an amazing story. A complete stranger walked in off the street uh, and donated a million dollars to the overhead bank account, which then gave That's us a, a powerful year's story. Worth. Yeah, it gave us a year's worth of capital to then build this model, which is now a multi-year, multi-tier program with 135 families. Um, again, that most of them renew and most of them actually renew and upgrade after getting to know us. I think here's what I believe, and, and maybe mm. this could be useful for for the pastors. People want to know, okay, people are open to myriad value propositions. Okay, if I told okay. your your listeners right now that the front door to the office, let's say I was back in my office, the front right. door to of the office was broken or vandalized and I needed $650 to fix it. People would love to meet the need of a broken door. Mm. Or we needed a new copy machine and here's why we need it. People would love to meet the need of a copy machine. Now, those are unsexy overhead expenses, right? An yeah. office door or a copy machine. But people want to meet needs. So, it, what they what they want to know though is what they're actually paying for. Where is their money going? And I think the opacity often, you know. Oh, I've heard this. I mean, I've heard people that just say, "I won't give to the church because I don't know where the money's going. I don't know how much anybody's making." And you know, I saw somebody driving around in a tinted, you know, windows like hundred thousand dollar car once, and like, you know, and, and they're match that, that may be a very well run church. Uh, they may be very fiscally responsible, but I think it's the lack of transparency often that can hurt these organizations and their ability to get both small and large donations. So we have just taken a radical transparency view. We have KPMG come in and audit our 100% model. They audit right. the fact that we pay back all those credit card fees. It's one thing for me to tell you. It's another for a bunch of auditors to come and claw through and then opine on that 100% model. Every donation that Charity Water uses for our 110 staff, for the office, for the overhead, we have a paper trail. You can come in and paper test every single donation behind wow. it, which we actually asked the auditors to come do uh, for the last decade. So I think it's the transparency that I believe. You don't need the 100% model. Uh, people just want kind of a sense of what do things cost and you know how much do people make and – you know, I mean, my salary has been public for 13 years. You know, mm. I mean, it's, it's been published in the New York Times before. And, and my wife and I are, are generous givers and we, or we like to be. We, we've given over half a million dollars back after tax wow. to charity. You know, we've personally built 50 wells uh, because we believe in the work so much. And this is over, you know, over a decade mm. or so. But I think um, – you know, just, just tell, and, and I know so many pastors that I meet are so generous, you know, they're, yeah, that is they're true. making a lot less money than people think they might be making. And they're giving a lot more money away than people might be. Somebody, um, there's a very famous pastor, um, probably now in his seventies from New York city. Um, I, I won't use his name, but, uh, I knew somebody on his board once and they said, you know, every time we give him a raise, it's so frustrating because he just gives it away. <laughs> We're trying to pay him more money. We're trying to help his family. And, you know, we've done this a bunch of times and he just keeps giving it away. So I, I think just I love that. Often it, it feels like sometimes the, the, the nonprofits or the churches are afraid of transparency and they really don't need to be. 
Mm. Oh, that's so good. And that's that's yeah. what I found the donors want. That's what I found the donors want. So whether you're paying for my overhead or whether you're giving ten dollars a month, you want to know where the money's going and how it works, how the thing works. So we talked a lot about the dangers ahead and the possible scenarios and planning for that. What is the upside of what's ahead, knowing that we're in the middle of a huge tragedy? But what's the upside that no one's talking about or not enough people are talking about right now? Well, I think there's a family and and social dynamic upside. Um, I think my biggest fear is that we all try to make up for lost time. That you and I try to go be even busier, you know, at the beginning of next year, because we lost 20 speeches this year, you know, and all those flights, and, and we try to fly twice as much and speak twice as much. <laughs> I think in some ways, you know, many of us have found healthier rhythms in our marriages, healthier rhythms with our kids, uh, less rush, maybe, you know, j- just in the travel rush. I mean, gosh, I go back and forth to JFK at least four times a week. On average, I was doing 80 flights a year. Yep. And I haven't gone anywhere. I mean, I, I, I logged under the Delta app the other day, Carrie. Like, you have no upcoming trips. I've never seen that. I know, I know. So let me ask you, are you loving it? Because I've flown over 100,000 miles the last three years. And like, I, I am actively trying to cut my travel in half in 2021 from previous levels, maybe lower. I am loving it. Um, I'm, I'm, But I'm, I'm also missing it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's fair. You know, there's a part of, sometimes I get my best, thinking done at 35,000 feet, you know, not with a three and a five year old. Yeah. So just during this podcast, I don't even know if you heard it, but my five year old was banging two doors over, you know, asking me when I'm going to be done. Um, (laughs) Sorry, this is long form podcasting. I apologize. I'm going to want to go back uh, on the road. I I love being with people. I love telling the story. Um, I, I get such an energy from from audiences and just from meeting our, our supporters in person and getting to know their families and their passion and the other things that they're giving to, uh, getting to know what they're like and, and their dreams. Um, but I want to do less of it. I don't want to do 80 yeah. flights a year again. I want to spend more time, you know, making breakfast with the kids, mm-hmm. uh, reading them, you know, being there for bedtime. You know, often I'm, I'm on that red eye or so I've missed a lot of bedtimes over the last few years. I was talking with a friend last night who does a lot of flying as well. And we were just saying, like, isn't it weird that like two months ago, life was, yeah, I'm going to be in Miami on Tuesday. And then I think I'll do the West Coast Wednesday, Thursday. And then I can do a stop off in Chicago Friday and then home for the weekend. And it's like, did we actually live that way? Like that almost seems surreal now, doesn't it? Yep, yep. But we yeah, did. and a lot, of, a lot of airline lounges, you know, which just... <sighs> A lot of delays. And so I, I, I think that a lot of people have, uh, their eyes are opened to a slow, I mean, my, my favorite book of the year was John Mark Comer's um, oh, yeah. Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I just think we're, my wife and I are realizing that we were too busy. We were rushing around too much. We weren't present enough. Uh, I'm hearing that from others. And I think, I hope we slow down and I hope we don't just rush out to buy things as well. I mean, I have to say, I mean, the money that we're saving by cooking dinners and the, the better experiences we're having cooking together as a family, I I want more of that, uh, in my life going forward, even if things do return to, to, to normal. Hmm. What other leaders are you seeing? And again, we've covered a lot 
that you think are doing things really well right now, whether that's not-for-profit church leaders, business leaders, you're like, yeah, I've got my eye on, and you can name names. Like this person like is a best practices person to be following right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked with Louie and Shelley uh, and their team last week um, down at Passion City. They're doing a great, just a great job online. I, I have surprised at the agility. I mean, it's like all these churches are now turning into startups. They're, they're pretty <laughs> online. The content looks good. It sounds good. Uh, they they somehow figured out how to get good cameras and good audio and and put this together. Um, so you know, Bridgetown, I think, has been doing a great job. Um, yeah. Church of the City, uh, Good Shepherd. You know, there's, there's a bunch of of um, you know of our local churches that we have just been surprised. And and I know how much work goes into it. You know, I yeah. know that the 60 hour weeks for, for many of these leaders and musicians, but, but the reinvention, the creative energy feels positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we will link for listeners. Uh, a lot of those have been previous guests. So interviewed Louis Giglio in January, John Mark Comer in January. And I think you also mentioned John Tyson's church. So we'll link yep. to those episodes in the show notes. If you want to catch up with those leaders, if they're not on your radar, exceptional leaders. Scott, any final thoughts? And then uh, tell us how we can help. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I, I think try to, we're, tr- we're hoping to capture the learnings. You know, I think sometimes we just, we don't, even, even now, um, you know, now that I say, like, I'm not traveling, this, we're, things are still going so fast. Yeah. It's trying to find the space to be alone, to take the walk in the woods, to really think about what do we want to keep? How do we want our lives to change? What did this teach us? How, how do we want to be, you know, how do we differently form our families or our work lives going forward? I just think that the, the tendency, the risk is that this wasn't quite long enough to really set in maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Mark Sayers has said, we're almost finding a new normal too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think just, you know, come up with those things that you just will not let go of that were really mm-hmm. positive things that came out of this. Um, if it's the, the, the family meals together, I mean, I'm hearing this just yeah. as a through line from all the dads that I'm talking to and many of these, you know, these CEOs and leaders that are home. I mean, they're having, dinner with their families. They're not out having work dinners. They're not out having dinners with other CEOs. They're having dinners with their with their their families. Um, that's one that this just be really special for for us that we want to keep and um, and that'll mean I'm gonna say no to you know to speaking and travel and, and to a bunch of, of trips uh, so that I can say yes to to more of that. Um, as far as uh, the way to help, I mean we, we made um you know, if anybody's interested kind of in learning more about Charity Water, just go to the spring.com. Um, there's a video there. It's gotten, I don't know, 30 or 40 million views. And um, you can kind of learn the story of Charity Water, why clean water is so important. And, you know, there might be people that could give 40 bucks a month. That's that's how much it costs to help one person get clean water. Um, maybe some people could give 10 bucks a month. Maybe some people with their small business could give even more that's doing well. So, um, our families, our spring members, it's a, it's a great way to help. 100% of the money goes. And, and that's really where we need the help 
uh, I'd say the most right now is with that community of people who can, um, who can be loyal, who can sign up and kind of, you know, help us build back um, or, or continue the mission. So the spring.com for, for info okay. on that. Well, Scott, as usual, it's been a joy and uh, I know we'll stay in touch, but I'm really looking forward to maybe in a year or two years or maybe sooner uh, talking about the rebound and what's happened to the new charity water and how you've been able to make a difference. And you helped a lot of leaders today. And I'm just so grateful for that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope it was helpful. Extremely helpful. Thanks, Scott. Well, like I said, that's a bracing view. Uh, I thought about that many, many times since I had that conversation with Scott. I really appreciate his perspective. And, you know, I think it was that Warren Buffett quote, right? When the tide goes out, you can see who's been swimming without shorts. And a lot of people were caught like in this crisis and nobody foresaw this. Anybody who tells you, oh yeah, I knew this was coming. They, they, they had no idea this was coming. Um, but I do think that you can take precautions in the future. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit at the end of this show in the What I'm Thinking About segment about um, how to reopen your church and basically how to do it wrong. Uh, wrote a post that kind of completely took off on the internet. I want to share some of those ideas with you. But in the meantime, guess what? We got fresh episodes coming up and I've got Paula Ferris from ABC News coming up. Uh, she's going to be with us next time on the show. So have a listen uh, because she used to host The View and Good Morning America. And then she had a major career pivot and she's a lot of fun. Here's an excerpt. And so our society has placed so much emphasis on doing instead of being. And that doesn't stop at the pulpit. We are told routinely we need to find our calling. Our calling will find us. And it's always related. It's synonymous with career. Is it not? Calling yep. is always synonymous with mm -hmm. career. So it was a little bit, I would say it's a, it's, it's a mix of my own failings and shortcomings, but also what society and church has taught us that calling is career, that value is vocation, and that worth is work. And that is an mm. outright lie. So that's coming up. And uh, we will be doing a lot of the episodes we are going to do in the spring now. Uh, you know, the crisis continues. And I talked to Patrick Lencioni about it. I have conversations with other leaders about it. Uh, but we'll also be bringing you some regular interviews as well, because eventually you just got to get on with your life, right? <laughs> you can understand that. So uh, Paula and I talk a little bit about the crisis, but then really uh, dive into her career and so much more. So you guys have been fantastic through this. Thank you for letting everyone know about it. And, uh, you know, when you share the podcast, uh, we really, really appreciate that. So uh, what am I thinking about? Well, this segment is brought to you by ProMedia Fire. They've got a non-profit growth program today. Only seven applicants accepted. So hurry, ProMediaFire.com forward slash growth and then text carry to 33222 to get a free ebook called Your 2020 Budget Just Blew Up. Now what? Just carry to 33222. So what am I thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about how not to open your church. This is uh, definitely one of the most challenging seasons in leadership I've ever seen. And as a friend of mine uh, texted me a few weeks ago, he said, you know, closing our buildings down was far easier than opening them up ever will be. And he's right. It's super complicated. And you see uh, uh, probably some good decisions being made, but also this is an opportunity 
for high stakes mistakes. Um, so I want to share with you seven ways not to reopen your church. When I published this uh, a version of this online, I called it The Idiot's Guide to Reopening Your Church with apologies to Dwight Schrute and C.S. Lewis in the Screwtape Letters. Uh, you guys played along with that really, really well and the post took off. But, um, you know, I get this. You want to get back in your buildings. You want to get back to what you know. But here's how to completely blow the reopening of your church. First way to do it, violate as many social distancing guidelines as you think you can get away with, right? So, we're supposed to be six feet apart, but if you really want to make a mess of reopening your church, say, well, why don't we do five feet apart? You know, because then we can squeeze a hundred more people in. And, uh, you know, well, well, if they're wearing face masks, why do they need to be five feet apart? Maybe we can pack a few more people in. And oh my gosh, I'll tell you, don't do that. Don't do that. You really want to life and death hang in the balance on this one. I think you want to be as cautious as possible. Okay, second way to blow your reopening is exercise your constitutional rights, but ignore your responsibilities. So many people are talking about their rights, but you know, uh, I mean, I used to study law and uh, have a degree in political science and history as well. There are rights and responsibilities. And in a hyper-individualistic culture, people are super focused on their rights, but what about your responsibilities? And again, if you want to blow it, Right When you think about the Christian faith deeply, it has nothing to do with responsibility to love others or care for others. Come on, it does. So definitely think about your responsibilities, not just your rights. How about this? Number three, open so fast you have to close again. Yeah, this is actually happening to churches, right? They're opening. And even churches that are following all the social distancing guidelines, uh, they're the source of an outbreak. By the way, that is a great way to get national media attention is to be the source of an outbreak. So yeah, try not to do that. Open so fast you have to close again. Fourth way to kind of open like an idiot is make it political. I don't know how this became a partisan issue, but we live in this age where everything is both tribal and partisan. And wow, that's so deflating. And when you follow social media and people are saying, well, you know, you can't trust the media and you can't trust this and you can't trust epidemiologists and you can't trust, so what? You're going to trust your cousin Myrtle? That's what you're going to do? Like, come on. Like, anyway, make it political. Shouldn't be tribal, shouldn't be political. And you're going to alienate half the people you're trying to reach who don't vote like you. How about this? Use your social media platform to vent. You might think, well, that's exactly what you're doing, Carrie. Well, sort of. Um, actually, this was a post, and I have to really, I can be impulsive. I'm an Enneagram 8, as some of you know. Uh, but what I did when I made the original post of this, and we'll link to it in the show notes, is uh, I actually took two or three days to write it. I did pray about it. I shared it with about, I think it was like eight friends that I sent it to who lead churches ranging in size from 400 to over 10,000. And I just said, hey, what's right? What's wrong? Fix my tone on this. Uh, the real problem, it's not that you can't say something important on social media, but a lot of the times it's just so easy to hit publish and then you kind of regret it. So uh, get rid of the impulsiveness in your social media program, right? Because people are watching, unchurched people are watching. Okay, sixth way to completely blow the reopening of your church, abandon your online advances and make it 100% about the building. Listen, I see this happening and people are like so excited to get back into their buildings and you are actually reaching people online. And listen, a lot of people aren't coming back soon. Everybody I talk to is like, wow, our attendance is 20 to 40% of what it was pre-COVID when they get back into their buildings. You know, the internet is not really a fad. It's probably going to be here for a little while. So don't abandon your online practices. Number seven, <laughs> treat online attendees like second-class citizens. I see a lot of people just disparage online, make fun of people who don't come to church. There are some people 
who are older and at risk that may not come back for a while, and it's not because they don't love God. Uh, There are others who are maybe not older, but they struggle with some comorbidity risks like obesity or diabetes, or maybe they don't have access to health care, or they're caring for aging parents and don't want to expose them. Or maybe they're just away for the weekend and they want to connect. Um, Yeah, don't make people who don't show up feel like second-class citizens. And then (laughs) I'll throw this in for bonus points because people are actually saying this. But don't tell people that your faith buys you immunity from disease. It doesn't. I mean, you can barely read through three pages of the Bible without seeing that God's people suffer. The Bible has calamity, disease, poverty, and sometimes God's people have to go through it. So I I think that's just tough theology. So Anyway, if you want to make those mistakes, man, I would not, but that's an easy way to blow the reopening of your church. So if you want to see a written uh, version of that post, you know, it's funny when I say it out loud, it's harder to uh, phrase it exactly the way I did it in the post, uh, but we will link to that in the show notes. And of course, as always, we do have show notes available. It's uh, kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 344. Back next week with a fresh episode and so much good stuff coming up, guys. We have, who do we have? Henry Cloud, Sam Collier, Bob Goff, Danielle Strickland, uh, Mark Miller from Chick-fil-A. Did I mention Patrick Lencioni? I think I did. Levi Lusco, John Tyson, so many more. Guys, it's going to be a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.